Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. How about we begin and end with the song this morning? We think about that. I don't do many songs from the pulpit, but I think I will. I won't really sing it, but I will begin and end with a song. This one's from the 1950s. It was remade in the 70s. I think I will just read the lyrics, maybe with whatever rhythm I can muster. And then we'll read beginning in verse 13 from Luke chapter 12. The song, I think, speaks for itself. Here it is. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. I want money. Next verse. Your love gives me such a thrill, but your love don't pay the bills. I want money. That's what I want. I want money. I want money. I want money. I want money. You can hear the girls singing in the background. Money don't get everything, it's true. But what it don't get, I can't use. I want money. I want money. I want money. Now, that's a song in the 50s. Redone in the 70s. And it speaks to the heart of the human condition. It is more blunt than we would like to be. More honest than we typically are. I want money. Verse 13 of Luke 12 says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wants money. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Which is a shocking thing to hear the Lord Jesus say. I thought Jesus was the judge of everybody. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's a verse to memorize right there. I think we maybe we just read that a couple of times here. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You guys think you could pull that off reading it along with me? Now I'm in the New King James. If you have the ESV, you're not going to be able to do this very well. Maybe just muddle through it. Sorry, Justin, you're out. You should be using the authorized version. No, I'm kidding. The new authorized. No, I'm just joking. All right, if you can do it with me, let's do it together. Beginning in verse 15, just one verse. If I'm the only one talking, you guys are all in rebellion this morning in a second. Don't put me in that situation. Verse 15. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Some of you didn't say it. I understand. I hope you said it along quietly. I hope you say it to your children. I hope you say it when you sit down and you do your budget. I hope you say it before you go Christmas shopping, birthday shopping, spring shopping, clothes shopping, shopping. Take heed and beware. Not just take heed. Take heed and beware of covetousness. 
Then he spoke a parable. Oh, I heard someone say, what is covetous? Was that the Raymer family back there? Very good. I hope you're listening this morning. Verse 16, then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Uh, about a year ago, I started doing a Wednesday night Bible study on money and finance. Started off pretty well. Had a good crowd. It dwindled as we went along. It really dwindled when I started talking about covetousness and debt and money. I don't think we like to be confronted thoughtfully about these things. Greed and covetousness is not a sin for the haves. It's a sin for the haves and the have-nots. It is both. And you see that in the text this morning. The first guy comes to Jesus and he says, Make my brother give me some of the money from the inheritance. Now, he's saying, I'm a have-not. I'm not getting what I should get, what I want to get. Step in and make him, make the have, give to me. But Jesus' correction is not for the have. It's for the have-not. And he says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Now, again, this is Jesus who repeatedly says that we will all give an account to him. So what is he doing saying, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? His domain, if you will, is not litigating dollars and coins. His domain is the entire human heart. And so the guy says, I want you to solve a dollar issue. And Jesus says, I'm not here to solve your dollar issues. I'm here to solve your heart issue. Be careful of covetousness. And so you would expect the parable that follows to be in that vein. I have not. Who really wants something that they can't get their hands on. That's the situation that arrives on Jesus' doorstep. A have not who wants what he can't get. And Jesus says, you shouldn't want 
what you can't get, which is covetousness. Covetousness is wanting what you don't have. You can try to make it a more spiritual definition and say, well, it's wanting things that you shouldn't want. That's not the definition. You can say, well, it's wanting things you can't afford. That's not the definition either. It is simply wanting what you don't have. That's it. It is the opposite of contentedness. And I, I'm tempted to do this myself. Well, I'm content. I have everything I need. I'm content. If you look at my credit card statement, do I appear content? There are two things that are not in agreement with each other. Contentment and covetousness. So Jesus says, beware of covetousness. Take heed. Beware of it. But then the parable he tells is the other side of it. It's a have who won't give. It's both sides. So it's like, here's a guy who doesn't have and saying, hey, Jesus, I want you to give me what I want. Money. And he says, beware of covetousness. And then the story he tells is about a guy who has and who won't give. So observation number one, which is real simple from the text. This is a sin for the haves and the have-nots. And I know some people sit there and their haves and they know their haves. And, and they, maybe no one else knows their haves, but they know their haves. And they're like, man, I wish I don't like this. I don't agree with this. I don't want to talk about this. Why does he have to talk about money? And then there are have-nots who sit there and, and they're like, oh yeah, I hope the haves are really paying attention. No! In one passage, both groups are addressed because the sin is the same. The sin is the same. Wanting what you don't have. Let's frame covetousness in biblical terms. Let's just stay in the New Testament for a minute. We'll go to the Old Testament soon enough. Let me just give you a sampling of five times covetousness is specifically referenced in the New Testament. Verses in Romans. Romans 1.29. Some of you will recognize the verse because at the end of Romans chapter 1 is where a whole bunch of awful things are listed out that we don't want any part of. A lot of them borderline inappropriate to even talk about it in this mixed crowd on Sunday mornings. Without some kind of disclaimer. And in Romans 1.29, it describes those who are worldly and sinful and headed towards judgment as those who are being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, Dot, 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 it continues. And right in the middle there is the word covetousness. Wanting what they don't have. So this is not like, oh, be careful, you know. It's a big deal. 
It's in the Ten Commandments, big deal. It seems so small to us. Does this seem small to you? I wouldn't fault you if it seems small to you. You have been conditioned for this to seem small to you. We have been taught and trained with carrots at the end of sticks. You know, the idea of a kid's idea of riding a horse and dangling a carrot out in front of it so that the horse will go wherever you want it to go. You know, how many of us have not told a child, if you do this, I will get you a treat. <laughs> so do this, not merely because it's honorable or what you should be doing or what, but do it to get the treat, you know. It doesn't seem... I've got some kids covering up their heads back there. Some guilty parties maybe. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And I don't blame you. And the question comes to us, do you believe the Bible? Is God's word foolish? I'm going to make the case to you that it's not. It's a bigger deal than you think. It has more practical implications than you realize it appears in Ephesians 5 3 in the same tone but fornicators and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints for Christians in Colossians 3 5 therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication uncleanness passion, evil desire, and covetousness, parentheses, which is idolatry. Idolatry, not adultery. That was the first stuff in the list. Idolatry. Idol worship. 1 Thessalonians 2.5 Here is Paul describing his ministry compared to false teachers. This is him talking here. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is my witness. He's saying, when I came to you in Thessalonica speaking to you, I never once tried to flatter you or butter you up or worry about your feelings. I didn't do any of that as a cloak to win you over for what I really wanted, for covetousness. I wasn't trying to win friends for my own financial or personal gain. God is my witness. He says when people come to you and they butter you up and they, they blunt the edge of the sword and they don't tell you like it is and they're not willing to speak to hard things, they're just throwing a cloak over their own covetousness. They're covering it up because they know if you react badly, if you don't respond the way they want you to respond, it might hit their pocketbook. He says, I didn't do that. 2 Peter 2.3, again talking about false teachers, Peter writes, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. Do we have false teachers who prey upon people's wants and desires with promises that if they just listen to them or follow them, they'll get what they want and then who really gets enriched in the whole process? The teachers themselves. This is what Peter's talking about. It existed in the first century. It exists in the 21st century. 
2 Peter 2.3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not sleep. They will exploit you with deceptive words. Let me give you two quotes from some prominent advertising people. First guy, quote, in our factory we make lipstick. In our advertising we sell hope. Pretty honest. Here's the second one. A good ad should be like a good sermon. It must not only comfort the afflicted, it also must afflict the comfortable. It has to assure the afflicted that they can have peace, prosperity, the thing that will give them what they want. It has to shake the comfortable into thinking, I don't really have what I need. Our world is led around by the nose. Exploited by our own covetousness. American families are more in debt than ever before. The government just passed out God knows how much seemingly free money. And people are more in debt than ever before. November 2021. An article releases from ABC. Our household debt is $15.24 trillion, averaging the American household $155,000. Four biggest sources of debt, your house, your car, your student loans, and your credit cards. Everybody talks about medical debt. It doesn't make the top four. I'm not saying it's not real. It doesn't make the top four. What comprises the $155,000 on average? The house you live in, the car or cars, if we're being honest, we drive. The education expenses we take on, and everything else we can pay for with Visa or MasterCard, American Express. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we want things that we cannot pay for. So we borrow. And then do you know what they call our actions with that debt? You know what they call it? They call it servicing the debt. It's funny. That's what God calls it too. Did you know that? A man cannot serve two masters. You ever heard that? <laughs> now I'm not saying if you have debt, you're not serving God. I'm simply saying service is how God refers to it as well. Because you owe it. <laughs> now the New Testament council, and I don't think it's meant strictly as financial counsel, but owe no man anything but love, is the principle that we should not go around indebting ourselves needlessly. But most debt is not strategic. Most debt is wanting and wanting and wanting and taking even though we can't pay for what we want. 
And if you don't think that's destructive, you didn't grow up in the house I grew up in. Beware of covetousness. This is about the point when people stopped coming to my Wednesday night Bible study. They'd heard enough of that. I understand. Observation number one. Covetousness is not merely a sin for the haves. It is a sin for the haves and the have-nots. Observation number two. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 25. We will begin reading in verse 2. Observation number 2. The Lord holds those who have accountable. Covetousness and greed are not merely sins for the haves, but the have-nots. The Lord holds the haves accountable. Now, this is the parable of the guy who said, I'm going to keep everything that I have and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And Now, I've talked about that parable a lot. By the way, probably didn't want me to do this, but I made a joke, and it was a joke about industrial engineering at one point in time. It was a joke. The problem is not the guys building the barns. Okay? I thought that was obvious. I should say it. I'd... The problem is with the man who decides in his wealth, he will use it for his purposes of ease and retirement. That's what gets him called a fool. You fool. Tonight your life will be... And again, I've touched on this several times recently, but the guy is given a very short period of time because he's going to die that night. A very short period of time to do something right with his money. He probably doesn't even have enough time left on this earth to actually do it himself. But he has enough time to make a decision about what he's going to do with this great harvest that he's had. And what he does in that time that he's allotted is make the choice to keep it all himself. To store it up. And retire. And have it for many days ahead. Okay, observation number two, the Lord holds those who have accountable. Here to verse two of chapter 25. Now there was a man in my own whose business was in Carmel and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Not the chocolate, the, the place, sorry. My mind wandered. The name of the man was... Nabal, the name of his wife Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness, yep, that David, that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, this man, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. 
Now the context here is David is basically roaming around with a traveling army. So when a emissaries from a traveling army visit you, it's important to know under what context they're visiting. And David says, I want you to go and I want you to say peace. We don't mean you any harm. We're not here to take anything from you by force. We're not trying to do you any evil. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. David has at least 600 mouths to feed, probably more. Because that's just the men following him. There are shepherds with sheep by the thousands that he is providing implicit protection for and they have not so much as taken one sheep for the service. Ask your young men and they will tell you in this message he sends to Nabal. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. He says, please give us something. That's what he says. Doesn't give an amount. Like, well, I'm taking a tax. What's 10% of a thousand sheep? I, I mean, you know, I'm, he doesn't take a tax. Just give something to the young men. Pretty reasonable request of the haves, I think, from the have-nots. Again, David has been forced on the run by King Saul. He doesn't have fields to farm or pastures to keep animals of his own at this point in time. He's trying to feed his troops because of their unjust persecution under Saul's kind of vengeful civil conflict with David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Couple things. <laughs> First, he knew who David was. Everybody knew who David was. Uh, David had killed the Philistine. David had been an officer in Saul's court. David had married the king's daughter. <laughs> David uh, was well known. But this guy says, who is David? In the, in the sense of, why should I do you any favors? David can't scratch my back. Why should I scratch his? I'm not going to get anything out of this. Why should I do anything for you? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master the implication is an insult that David would overthrow Saul and had revolted in the kingdom, which wasn't true. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who I do not know where they are from? You hear this when people defend their greed. They talk about their wealth as if it's 
barely enough to sustain them. As if giving of it presents some great risk to them. As if they have to be careful and cautious. I didn't get to where I am in the world by being foolish. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. <laughs> uh, it was a bad strategic decision in the first place by Nabal. We can assume that Nabal himself probably had connections, if not men to fight on his own behalf. Probably calculating that David would not risk conflict over this insult. But David, having been insulted, has decided that he will risk it. He says, uh, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. David also girded on his sword. Which is important. He's not merely going to command other people to go raid Nabal. He's going to take matters into his own hands. And about 400 men went with David. 200 stayed with the supplies. Again, this is, they're like wandering vagabonds at this point in time. They don't have... The supplies are everything. They don't have anything else. They've been on the run for a while from Saul. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisin, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. It's a smart woman. You notice how many sheep? Five. I wonder how meager of a gift would have been enough. But that's not the point. The point was nothing would be given on principle. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Life in a fallen world. Honor your husband. Honor the Lord. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her. That must have been a sight. And she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed, and of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. Hope those of you high schoolers in my Sunday school classroom this morning caught that line. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David's not messing around. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me. 
let this iniquity be. And we find out she really is honoring her husband, isn't she? And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Worthless, foolish. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seeks your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. She's talking about Saul, the king, and his pursuit of David. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. Abigail and Nabal are on two different sides of this civil conflict in Israel, aren't they? That this will be no grief to you. <laughs> when God is finished with you, you will not have any grief over this little spat with my husband. <laughs> he will take care of you. This will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you may have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, when God has dealt well with you, then remember your maidservant. That is a wise woman. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand, what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. David is grateful that he, she stopped him from doing something rash. This is David who has refused to avenge himself throughout this whole time of struggle. And this guy Nabal had pushed him too far. And he sees Abigail's gift as God's mercy in keeping him from shedding blood that he shouldn't have shed. Because God has been David's defender throughout this whole ordeal. And again, observation number two. The Lord will deal with Nabal. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. I sound like the guy from Luke 12. 
And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, his heart died within him, he became like a stone, and it happened about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You fool, I hear echoing from Luke 12. Very shortly, your life will be required of you, and then whose will all of these possessions of yours belong to. And I hope you hear the words of Jesus, take heed and beware covetousness. For a man's life does not consist of his possessions. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and kept his servant for evil. from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. Do not think that you can be greedy and covetous and escape judgment. You will not be careful and thoughtful, which is the third and final observation I'll make to you today. You should be thoughtful and deliberate about what you do with what you have. You should be careful and not trusting about what you want that you don't have. This is a battle that will never end on this earth. Sometimes when I find myself wanting something that I can pay for, I refuse to buy it and refuse to get it just because I want to know internally that I still have victory over my own wants and desires. That's why I'm still driving a 2004 Ford Fusion. I have wanted... I'll just share my own. I have wanted a newer vehicle for about six years now. The only reason I haven't bought one is because there is value in knowing you can still say no and proving it to yourself. This is a war that you have to wage with your flesh. And I'm not telling you not to buy a car. I'm not telling you what to do at all. I'm saying beware. This will never stop. And I have watched Christian people go from have-nots and work very hard to become haves. And I have seen those who've done it well. And I have seen those who haven't done it well. And as they move from have-nots to haves, they don't keep a governor on their desires because they can afford it now. And it changes who they are as people. <laughs> Observation number three, there is freedom in thoughtfully letting go. Matthew, the tax collector, who thoughtfully stands up and walks away. 
leaves the tax booth behind, leaves the safety and the security behind, and follows Jesus. Abraham, the victor over multiple armies, the steward of all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, returning the people and possession to their land and refusing to keep any of it. Though they're ready to give him everything except the people. He has rescued the people from slavery and is in charge with his military of all the possessions. And he will not keep any of it. And not for some moral reason against Sodom and Gomorrah, but because he will not have it said about him that anyone else made him rich. I won't keep it. Did he earn it? Yes, he earned it. <laughs> he went and rescued all these people. <laughs> I'd say he, he earned it more than I've ever earned anything I've got. Thoughtfully letting it go. A tenth he gives to the priest of God. And that's it. Elisha, who would not take Naaman's gifts compared to Gehazi, who runs after him and curses his own family. Zacchaeus, who understood that his salvation must be accompanied by repentance of letting go. I love you and I hope you know that I love you. But we have to confront these things honestly. And I'm, I'm 40, I'm 39. I am not where I was at 20. Some of you are a little older, some of you are a little younger. Some of you are very young. You know, you don't have anything right now. <laughs> Except for what? Mom or dad has let them have. I mean, some of you are very young. But as you go through life, you have to beware of covetousness because it will come to you over and over and over again. Your flesh will not be satisfied in any permanent way. Your spirit, your soul can be satisfied in Christ, but your flesh will keep wanting. You have to fight that actively. You have to be thoughtful. I don't budget so that I can buy groceries at the end of the month. I budget so I know what I'm giving away every single month. Because if I don't budget, I will spend more on me than anyone else. It is my way of being thoughtful. And not letting my own possessions become my master. Without me even realizing it. I told you I would begin the sermon with the song and end it with the song. Here is Michael Card. That's a very different vibe from the first song. It's not a this is not an encore. This is not, you know, the I want money. This is Michael Card. There sits Simon, so foolishly wise. Proudly he's tending his nets. Simon, the fisherman. 
Jesus calls and the boats drift away and all that he owns he forgets. Now let me ask you, was Simon Peter done with his struggle for wanting when he walked away to follow Jesus? Not if you know his story. More than the nets he abandons that day, he found that his pride was soon drifting away and it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. Matthew was mindful of taking the tax and pressing the people to pay. Hearing the call, he responded in faith, followed the light and the way. Leaving the people so puzzled, he found the greed in his heart was no longer around. And it's hard to imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. Do you realize that what you see in the walls of your home and what you drive and what you wear and what's in the accounts can become your chains. The things that you can no longer imagine living without. When I was 18, it was very easy to imagine living without things. I didn't have anything. Every heart needs to be set free from possessions that hold it so tight because freedom's not found in the things that we own. It's the power to do what is right. With Jesus, our only possession, giving becomes our delight. We can imagine the freedom we find from the things we leave behind. There's a third verse, but that's far enough. So we won't do a Wednesday night series on Sunday mornings, but I, I urge you to take caution. Your heart is a human heart. Your soul has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but your heart is flesh and blood. And this world will ensnare it. Satan will ensnare it if he can. And he'll do it subtly, quietly, carefully. Until you wake up one day and all your money has become your cell and you can't imagine anything different. Beware of covetousness. A man's life does not consist of his possessions. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you. I surrender all that I have to you again and again and again. Take back the things that I've kept for myself. Clean out the parts that are dusty. Renew again my faith and my zeal to serve you. Give me a love and devotion so that my flesh can come into agreement with my soul that you are enough for me. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.